the trolley goes to the neighborhood of Makepeace. Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. How do you cure a hangover? Hair of the dog. Coming to you almost live from inside the trolley atop the high-level bridge, this is The Unknown Student. Scott, I'm Adam, and we are your hosts. Uh, joining us in the studio today is uh, one of Edmonton's daughters, a, a true celebrity, Linda Steele from <laughs> Global daughter. Television. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. Thanks yeah, for joining thanks us. Thanks for having me. We just wanted to uh, to bring you in because you're kind of a big deal around town. No, and hardly. <laughs> we wanted to, uh, to just talk about local media and some of the trends and your experiences. Uh, you know, you, you've been in Edmonton for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Born and bred. Born and bred. That's right. But you spent some time in Vancouver, too, didn't you? Yeah, I went to school at BCIT in the broadcast journalism program and then lucked into my first job back in the day when they actually let someone with no experience actually go on the air. They would uh, call me at uh, CKVU, was my first TV station. They would phone every morning at 6 if they needed a spare reporter. Really? So I started reporting for them as a student in the beginning of my second year at BCIT. But I was actually at CKVU reporting more than I was at school. So did that have an impact on your marks at all? or? No, but my fellow students were not too impressed. And so they all ganged up and went to the uh, department head and said, she's missing the required amount of classes. She should be kicked out. It was like, come on, the whole ultimate goal of this thing is to get a job. So <laughs> they actually let me sign off on a form that they would guarantee me 30 hours a week, and I had to do the rest of my courses by correspondence. That sounds like a pretty good deal, actually. It was a great deal, and it was total, you know, trial by fire, throw her out there. You're going to a Tory nomination meeting. I'm okay. I'm thinking, what's the Tory nomination <laughs> meeting? And I don't want to ask anybody. But it was it was a hoot. I loved it. So uh, what were some of the, the big... Uh, missteps maybe that you, that you took or some of the things that you weren't aware of when you because you're, you're in school and you're doing the job what was that like sort of one toe in one pool and a toe in the other I, I think any broadcast course will give you just the very basics but it doesn't really prepare you for real life when you get into the media it's so different yeah. so I think what you really need to have is curiosity a good work ethic you have to be a good team player and then you just bumble around and figure it out and hope you don't make a giant mistake <laughs> that gets you fired and that's how it all works. And you've been fortunate enough to not have been fired from anywhere. <laughs> no, actually, unless I'm unaware. No, and <laughs> yeah. you know what? It's a tricky thing, too, because uh, you're flying by the seat of your pants. You're on deadlines all the time. You're dealing with mass amounts of complicated information that you're trying to boil down. Someone wants to see you at the drop of a hat. So you do. And you feel sort of lucky when you get to the point where you say, hey, I've been in this business almost 25 years, haven't been fired and haven't been successfully sued. Ding, ding, ding. I win, you know? Yeah. So how did you transition from being out in Vancouver to getting a job at Global in Edmonton, which back in the day, I believe, was called ITV? Yes. It's such a small media world. You can't burn your bridges wherever you go because you will run into someone later who you had an issue with and suddenly they're your boss. So everyone is interconnected. And when I worked at CKVU, the assignment editor used to live with the assignment editor at ITV in Edmonton. And he was back for a visit and they said, oh, do you know of any young fresh meat, you know, some <laughs> reporter that would work for nothing. And so they recommended me. And I didn't want to come back to Edmonton because not that I don't love it, but I loved Vancouver and I was off on a new path. And I thought going back to Edmonton would be kind of stepping backwards in time. 
So I said, okay, I'll go for the interview because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I'd get it. I was offered the job. I put my foot down and said, no, I would only do it for 10 grand more. They were horrified and said, okay. And then I was horrified. <laughs> Drove my old Camaro, loaded up to the, you know, cried as I saw Vancouver going away in the distance and Aww. came back to Edmonton and said, I will stay for one year. That's it. Then I'm putting out resume tapes. And just as the one-year mark was coming up, I met this guy who was really cool. And then I started to get job offers in other cities. And I thought, you better be worth it. And he was. And so I took the chance on the personal relationship. And this July, we'll be married 21 years. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. I try to not make any decisions based on work. I I often (laughs) fail. Uh, My girlfriend will tell you that uh, I leave her sitting there waiting for me a lot of the time. But, oh, really? But she's very patient, and we're all very lucky to have the people we have in our lives. But uh, Very true. Um, <laughs> Love you, honey. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I don't, you didn't start as the 6 o'clock news anchor. No, obviously. but this is the weird thing. I actually didn't want to be an anchor. Believe really? it or not, back in the day when dinosaurs roamed the world, <laughs> journalists didn't want to be anchors. They wanted to be reporters because it was about being a journalist and it was about meeting the newsmakers and having the experience and being in the field. That's what was cool. That's why you did it. Mm-hmm. And so the job in Edmonton at ITV was the weekend anchor with three days of reporting. And that just really didn't appeal to me because I didn't want to anchor. And so suddenly I found myself, you know, putting on the trowel and makeup and all the rest <laughs> of it and thought, I, uh, I don't like this very much. It's not what I want to do. And so I begged them after a year, please, please, please put me back in the field full time. So I did that for about 10 years. And then you get to the point where you think, I don't really want to stand on a street corner and interview someone when it's 40 below anymore, (laughs) getting streeters about taxes. And then the anchoring started to become more interesting because, A, it was the challenge. I hadn't really done it. And I knew you had to really put a lot of, I mean, there's something to being an anchor. You can't just say, hey, I'm on TV and I'm an anchor. You have to get good at it. And I think that having the field experience made me a better anchor because I, I, I feel like a journalist. I'm a writer. Being on TV is really the smallest part of my day. Yeah. Yeah. And how how does a typical day work for you? I wake up to the news and then I read both papers and then I would listen to more news. And as I'm on my way to the gym, I listen to more news. And then when I come back, I listen to news as I'm getting ready and I watch and look online and I have Google alerts set up for Edmonton and Alberta. And so by the time I get to work, I have a pretty good idea what's going on in Edmonton, what's going on nationally and internationally. Mm -hmm. And I've seen what our assignment desk has put out. These are the six or seven things on our personal agenda. So I'm fairly up to date with what's happening by the time I get there. And then it becomes a series of meetings and and writing and setting up interviews and doing promos and just a million little deadlines throughout the day. Yeah, yeah. But it's not glamorous. Everyone thinks these young women, they're all excited. Can I come on and do a job shadow? And they're horrified to see you sit at your computer all day. They think, where are the people feeding you grapes and (laughs) fluffing your hair and putting on your professional makeup and everything? Isn't that what Gord Stanky does for you? Gord wears my makeup all the time. (laughs) It's the only job where your co-anchor, your male, is borrowing your powder compact, you know? (laughs) And he's a manly man who drives a motorcycle, so he can get away with it. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, yeah, because I think that people see, you know, movies like uh, 
well, I probably wouldn't think glitz and glamour when I when I saw Anchorman. But it, it, <laughs> it definitely it, you see a bunch of morons <laughs> walking around in a cloud of hairspray, <laughs> and that's not true either. I mean, there are a few people who are idiots in every profession, of course. But yeah. that's really not these days, especially being an anchor is not about just being pampered and you know, carried around on a pedestal. But that is a perception. I would love that. That is, that is a perception, though. And I know. I, we had had a conversation a while ago where you um, mentioned, you'd said something like, it, it's, it sucks when a viewer emails you and says, oh, like, yeah. your hair didn't look good. Yeah. Well, Because you do that yourself, right? Yes. And so they say, you tell your makeup artist. I'll say, that would be me. What would you like me? Don't wear that lipstick again. Okay, I'll tell her that, you know. And so a lot of it is um, the, most people are very supportive and very kind and very interested and, you know, just super nice, normal people. Mm -hmm. And then you get this just little wedge of people who are damaged and envious or angry or maybe they have a relative who works at the competition or I don't know. Yeah. And those people sort of will reach out and cyber slag and you have to try not to take it personally, but I could recite word for word some of these emails because, there, you know, there's some real mean stuff that goes on. And so you think, well, whatever. Occasionally, you respond to someone if they have any sort of legitimate point of view. You can say, well, actually, this happened because of that. And they're like a big balloon that goes, you know, they all deflated. Oh, my, thank you so much. I can't believe you actually responded. We're like, yeah, and so now we're both cool. And then suddenly they run out and tell 20 people how cool it was that you actually care and you responded. Yeah. Versus telling 20 people you're a bag and you have bad hair and you're stupid or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, what was I going to ask? Hang on. Yes, yeah, so I, I think that I think that a lot of people who see you on television by virtue of the fact that you're on TV yeah. or, or hearing people on the radio or whatever, they think you're a big deal. <laughs> I, and I know... We've talked about this before, Linda. You don't think you're a big deal. No. You're just you're just a gal who reads the news. Well, you know what I think is I think I'm I'm essentially in my head a kid from Hinton who had this amazing opportunity. And for me, the whole TV job broadcast journalism has been an entree to meeting some of the most fascinating people I would have never met if I worked at Safeway or if I owned my own small business and got to go on some amazing trips and see the world and just be a part of history, you know, mm -hmm. standing there during the last referendum vote in 1995 through a haze of blue smoke in a bar in Montreal. I mean, all of a sudden my life is so much richer and so much more interesting because of this job. It has given me everything. But you still don't think you're a big deal? No, you know what? I, I honestly, I think I'm privileged to be able to do this job. And I get the fact that, especially these days with the focus on reality TV, everybody has got this desire to be instantly famous. Yeah. And they mistake television news as being the quickest way to getting on TV to become famous. And they don't realize that there's a bunch of ugly stuff that goes along with the job, too. You can't just sit down on the anchor desk and be on TV. You have to pay your dues and you have to go running through the inner city, you know, dealing with police issues and, and gritty stuff and, and standing outside when it's 40 below. And a lot of it's not fun. And a lot of it's uncomfortable interviewing someone who's just had a daughter murdered. You think that's fun? That's not fun. And you have to find a way to be a human being about it and Still you do and not. Job. Yeah. You know, um, I've been on television twice. I've been interviewed on Global twice, I think. And I'm still not famous. <laughs> okay. this did, you, did you get any feedback at all? 
Yeah, my mom thought I looked well, great. Well, see, that's famous. <laughs> my mom thinks I look great, too. <laughs> but I, she's biased. My mom called a bunch of my relatives the first time I was reading the news. <laughs> on the radio. On the radio. And told them that uh, I was going to be doing it. She was so proud of me. Unbelievable. And that's, I think she still does it, actually. Like, <laughs> Scott's reading the news cool, again. that's don't you think? I do think so. I do At think least so. I know I have one listener. You and see, that's my mom. Yeah. So When I first went on the air in Vancouver, my mom flew out from Edmonton and she was staying at the Sylvia Hotel in downtown Vancouver and she bought it one of those disposable cameras and she sat there and as they introed my story she clicked pictures all the way through the story waiting for me to appear on TV so she took an entire roll of film and uh, when I talked to her later she said what did you think she said well you didn't show up on TV I said well like we didn't do stand-ups in those days I mean honestly it was so not about being on TV back then that she didn't, I said, well, what about the story? Did you think it was well-written? Did you think it was interesting? But you weren't on TV. So yeah. she just threw this disposable camera out. And as far as she was concerned, the whole thing was a wash because I wasn't actually <laughs> appearing on the screen. But she could hear, were you Were you reporting, like using your yes, voice? Yes, 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 you know. In fact, the other day, it was just really absurd. They downloaded a story from, a historic story from a long time ago. And I was listening to it in my earphones the other day because we were needing the visuals, the stocks of something. And I thought, that person sounds familiar. And I realized, oh, my God, it's me. <laughs> it was from the first time I worked there. So I would have, you know, just the raw, raw rookie. And my voice was high-pitched and warbly. And I thought, good Lord. I, I laughed. Gord said, is there, is there a stand-up? I said, no, thank God. Is uh I can't imagine your voice ever being warbly. Well, it wasn't. Uh, it's funny, though, because when you're a kid and you don't know any better, you're trying to be serious. And so you're talking like a, I don't know, like a fake broadcaster and then blah, 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 you know, and there's no highs or lows or color. It's all just very flat. And I thought that's what you did. And no one told me any different until one day when I worked at CBC, they had a performance coach come in and he said to me, has anyone ever told you your voice is kind of flat? And I, at first I was offended. I thought, what? You know, because people had always said, oh, you have this deep, rich, low voice. It's really cool. And I thought, no one's ever told me that. And he explained that you're, you're in this fake zone of broadcaster voice, which is flat and uninteresting. He said, you have the best scenario. You have a deep voice. You can go up without forcing it. And yeah. so you can have all kinds of color and range and make people really pay attention to what you're saying through using your voice. And it was the first time someone said it to me. And I thought, wow. I was embarrassed. I didn't want to be like someone who I perceived to be an actor who was performing the script. I didn't mm -hmm. realize, though, that I could do it in a professional way that was more enjoyable for someone to listen to. There is a reporter voice, though. I, you know, there's definite um, common tonalities that, that reporters use when they're speaking. Yes. Are you taught to do that? or do you Well, just... not really. I think you listen to people and it's your perception of what you think people are supposed to sound like. And I don't think you have the skills at the time when you're new to define why you think someone's voice is better than someone else's. Mm -hmm. You may be kind of subliminally thinking, hey, this guy sounds really good, but you're not sure why. And so you do, you do what you think you're supposed to do. And it's not until somewhere in your career that someone will have the balls to sit down and say, hey, you know, has anyone ever told you? There's one person who I won't, who works for my network, who has a lovely voice, but she really uses it in a breathy way, in an intentionally breathy way. So every story is like, and then 10 people were killed on the train. And you think, That's, it becomes like a sex tape or something. And I think, <laughs> why would someone not say to her, you have a lovely voice, you might want to put a little bit more of an edge on it just 
because it was becoming a distraction, just as mine was a distraction by being so flat. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Oddly enough, you can go through your whole career and no one will say anything to you. Because? Because we don't have the luxury of having training, really. Yeah. I mean, the CBC will do it. God bless the taxpayers. <laughs> Funded corporation. Then some of the best courses I ever took in my career were through CBC. I'm actually my surprised. privates don't do it. I'm surprised that uh, that they didn't teach that at BCIT. But they did, but you didn't know what you were doing. Right. I okay. mean, so you're really just looking into a camera and faking it and being horrified that the rest of your classmates are listening to you pretending to be a newscaster. It's humiliating. Yeah. And I'm... so you really don't get it until down the road you somehow figure it out by yourself. So as you as you moved into the, the – you did the weekend anchor and you were still reporting, mm -hmm. right? When was there a moment in your career where you were like, "I'm I'm good at this. I feel like I've really hit my stride. I like sitting at this desk." Uh, anchoring, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that what I can say is this: is that there's one person that I trust more than anyone else in the world, and that's me. That I know in a pinch, that if all you know, hoo haws flying in the wind, that I can trust myself to pull it out of the bag because I have the experience and I have the work ethic. And I've done it, and I trust myself, and I will find that calm zone and get there. So do I think I'm good? I think there are things that I can always improve just like anyone else. But at the end of the day, I think I've put in the work, and I've walked the walk. And generally speaking, I know what I'm doing. So, yeah, in a bad scenario, if there's some huge breaking news thing, yes, I think that I have the ability to pull that off. Yeah, definitely. So um, how long have you – I mean, I, I've told you before – not to uh, not to reveal your age, but I, <laughs> I grew up watching you on television. Right. Um, how long have you and Gord been working together as a tandem? This November will be our 15th year together. Oh. And so, uh, oddly enough, that means we're the longest-running anchor team in Edmonton history. Holy crap. Yeah. That's Congratulations. Thank yeah. you, to you and Gord. <laughs> that Doesn't is... that seem weird? And people, I had did an interview with a national radio host the other day who somehow got confused and was talking about, kept asking me questions about Gord. And, but the, the subject matter was really about my husband. And I thought, I kept saying, well, I don't know what Gord thinks about it. I could ask him that. I kept thinking, did you not realize that I'm not actually married to Gord? <laughs> and, practically married to Gord. <laughs> well, I am. I know his ear intimately because <laughs> I stare at it throughout the whole day. <laughs> He's I Gordon and I we joke we say it's a bloody good thing we're not married or we'd be obese chain smoking alcoholics because we are too similar and we are very different. He can be really low key and I can be very intense and so I can bring his level of energy up and he can pull me down when I'm got my fingernails in the ceiling. And so we will balance each other really well especially in a breaking news situation when we're both a bit whizzed. And if we go do something off the cuff, if he's there, I have no stress about it whatsoever because we are so in sync. Mm -hmm. We say the same things and then look at each other like, get out of my head, man. We're saying exactly the same ad-libbing things. So we're very, we're very simpatico. And I think that's because he's a kid from Regina. Yeah. You know, and he was also a reporter, too. He says he likes to say his band probably played in the Hinton Hotel at the Athabasca Hotel when I was a kid sneaking in at 17. You know, so we just have a similar path. Was it always very easy to work with him? From the second I sat down. Yeah. I filled in. Leslie McDonald was on holidays, and they deigned to let me sit down with him. And from the second I sat down, we, we were cool with each other. We had a vibe. We were good. And was that... Uh... 
was that it? Like that when you repl- when you sat down instead of Leslie, was that where where the producers were like wow? Um, you know what? I think there was one producer, the key producer, who actually didn't want me to get the job. He thought, oh, let's go for some glamour, let's go for somebody new, let's go for someone fresh, let's bring someone in from Toronto, let's have, you know, Baywatch babe. Uh, let's not have her because she's not that interesting. And uh, somehow I managed to get it anyway. We did have American consultants who were hired and paid a lot of money to come in and tell our bosses what they thought. And they said... She and Gord have excellent chemistry. And you know what? People say, are you guys faking it? Do you really like each other? Is that like an act? I'm not an actress. So if I really didn't like someone, it would become apparent after 15 years in your body language and your tosses back and forth. People would know that you don't have respect for each other. You don't like each other. Mm -hmm. And so we've never had to pretend. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. When you you guys cut to commercial during the news, uh, you're you're not sitting there sort of doing more work. You're just waiting. (laughs) Doing more work. Well, do do you know what I mean? They're like writing. Uh, Well, sometimes we are because we have a live laptop and so we're checking breaking news or rewriting something or a new script has come in. So we're doing that. But to be honest with you, once you've hit six, you're pretty much the show is put to bed. Now you're just delivering it. Okay. I mean, with accepting breaking news. So generally speaking, in commercial breaks, we're gossiping, laughing, playing X's and O's, hangman. You know, sneaking jacking around some, some scotch or something like that. <laughs> yeah. If if Anchorman has taught us anything, <laughs> that's there's been the odd drink on the anchor desk, but it was really only <laughs> because it was New Year's Eve or something. Yeah. Yeah. And who really hasn't done that wherever you work? That's right. Have a little scotch during the job. I'd like to tell my employer at this point that I have never done that. <laughs> the worst thing is that I'm imagining like a firefighter or a police officer doing that now, yeah. and it's In very inappropriate. Car, yeah. Very inappropriate. No, yeah. I agree. So how how has how has news changed? Is your job easier or harder? Mm. Like a lot of things are changing very quickly now. The big change I think is that it used to be the old saw that if you owned a TV station it was a license to print money and that was so true. I mean you could have put color bars on the air and you would have tried, you know needed a flatbed truck to drive the money out. But over the years it, the competition got so stiff and there's so much to watch and there's so fracturing of the eyeballs that are available to watch the shows that our revenues have really dropped and then the economy tanks and then people aren't advertising and there's too much competition in the marketplace and so we continue to lay people off and expand the amount of programming we're doing yeah so we now do seven hours of live tv a day in edmonton and i don't know if people know this but through the magic of technology we now produce uh, and and put on shows for Halifax and Montreal and New Brunswick. Our camera guy, robotics guy in the studio is literally toggling the cameras in Halifax out of Edmonton. And the person who produces that newscast sits across from me in the newsroom. And the only person in Halifax is the anchor in a lime green virtual reality room with an IFB, an earpiece, and a two-second delay. Really? And we are running everything out of Edmonton. And all the, the sort of major global stations, we've split up the country. So Calgary does used to do a Fox News show, which I guess we own. And someone else does Regina and Winnipeg and Saskatoon. And we are all operating them remotely out of the major markets. That's nuts. It is nuts. So the camera guys used to, you know, smoke eight hours a day out in the scene dog. And now they can barely go to the bathroom because they are locked in their chairs. And now we're done. We're setting up for Montreal. And now we're done Montreal. And now we're setting up for Halifax. And 
it's uh, 24-7. It doesn't that's stop. That's insane. Yeah. And that's just because that's to save money. It's yeah. more efficient. And... Well, in some of those markets, they don't make money, right? And right. so you say, well, why does uh, Global have Halifax? Why not shut it down? Well, you're performing a service for the community. And yeah. the CRTC, you have to meet your obligations. But they did go, and they sold and shut down Red Deer and Kelowna because these stations were losing hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars that were being sucked out of the rest of the system. So when you're dealing with a new economic reality, sometimes you got to make tough decisions. So with Can West being in the position that it is right now, they're trying to get rid of the publishing stuff. Yeah. Where does that Where does that leave television? Are you guys... It doesn't sound like you're in trouble. You're running some of the shows in other parts of the country. Well, it's all very messy right now, but I believe Shaw Cable <clears throat> has just fully bought us. Really? Yeah. So there were some machinations and negotiations going on that are so far removed from us that we'd never know what's happening. But Shaw just secured 100% of global television, and it'll pull us out of creditor protection probably by September. So isn't that weird, this whole local TV matters battle between conventional television and cable, and now suddenly we're owned by the cable person that we were fighting? Or it kind of makes sense. Having said that... Shaw Cable is a formerly Edmonton-based, now Calgary-based company that has, over the last couple of years, made billion, with a B, dollar profits. So they clearly have some sort of model that works. And they own Chorus. They own all the radio stations. So yeah. now suddenly we're in a new broadcast kind of media family. We X out all the papers. I think they're going to Torstar. I heard that was in jeopardy, though. Uh, you know what? It's, it, it's daily. Always, yeah. Right. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we'll be run by an Alberta-based company. And I suppose the good news about that is that hopefully they know who we are and what we do and that we're valuable or, you know, well, and got, they have money. And they have access to distribution channels. Like, I mean, they control cable, right? I mean, they, they give people Internet access, They all this stuff. Yeah, it's a whole synergy. I mean, they wanted us for reasons. They want to launch a new wireless, waveless, wire. I don't even know what it is. They want to launch some new generation of wireless technology where I think they want to stream live programming like Survivor and House and whatever straight to your iPhone. But we own all that stuff. Yeah. And that costs a gazillion dollars. So now if they own us, then it's all, then they just stream it down and yeah. suddenly it's a big, interesting package. That's pretty wild, actually. Now, uh... Some of our listeners might notice that I'm totally Ed McManning this episode at the moment, and I've just like <laughs> I was going to say said my two cents here and there. Uh, that's because uh, Adam and Linda have uh, met before and have mm -hmm. had lunch together a number of times, and just have an amazing rapport going on. And I feel bad interrupting. Please and, interrupt. And also, Please Adam do. actually is asking all the questions that I would have wanted to ask. Oh, so yeah, how smart you are. So I'm just basically <laughs> sitting back and uh, not doing any of the work. Scott this is my gourd. He's my girl. Oh, we just, we just work so well together. That's he knows, right. You know, when to step in and not or whatever. After only a year or two, and it feels like it's been 15 years. It does. So, it does. See, I've aged 15 years in the last year. So. I can feel the chemistry. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, I wanted to ask you how uh, the internet has, has impacted. Oh, um, huge. Yeah. It's huge. And, and it's, it's changed the way you guys provide your services. Yeah. Though, it, it? It's changed the game entirely. And we... You know, in TV, we're not really all that computer savvy. Gord actually taught me how to use the internet, believe it or not. And that was like 15 years ago. Yeah. We didn't have it in the newsroom. We only had it in our promotions department. I have no idea why. Mm -hmm. So at nighttime, when we were still doing the late news, we'd sneak over into promotions and fiddle around on the computer and try to figure out how it works. And then think in those 15 years how much we now have this Facebook and Twitter and all these other 
applications and we're not even entirely sure how to use them. But I think there's an astonishing news application for social media. Yeah. But it requires a completely new way of thinking. And we sort of have one foot in the 80s and one foot in the new millennium. And we're trying to sort out where we want to be. Yeah. Do you find that uh, there's a lot of resistance to using these some of these new tools? Yes and no. We have a Facebook page, which oddly enough is for a news organization, the most highly subscribed Facebook page in Canada. No way. Yeah, in Edmonton. That's cool. So we have uh, 18, 19,000 Facebook fans, whereas, for example, Global National has 3,000. Hmm. Something like Global Calgary has, I don't even think they've cracked a thousand. Kevin Newman is no Linda Steele. I'll say it again. (laughs) Uh, Well, who knows? I don't know what it is, but our Facebook page has been really popular. Does that mean more people in Edmonton are using social media? I don't know. I think that actually might be the case. Edmonton has a really uh, robust social media scene, as can be seen by checking out just like Twitter locally. Uh, And all the people who are regularly using it, who meet up because of it. At the time that we're taping this, which is actually a few weeks before it will go to air, uh, there's the Yegg Media Camp going on, which is uh, an opportunity for media people to meet up with social media people Mm -hmm. and to talk about the future of the two mediums. Uh, That's a lot of media right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, it seems to me that that might be just another example of, of how Edmonton's just really plugged in. I guess. I think so. But I also it. think that like global um people's loyalty to global in Edmonton is it seems strong. It seems very strong. You had you had uh, Bill Matheson as mm-hmm. your weather your weather guy for a number of years. He was phenomenal. Oh, people yeah. remember Bill. Yeah. And and it's cuz he was real. Yeah, he was real. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't just there being like it's going to be 12 degrees today. He no. Was, he, he would explain he would talk about the what, Idaho high. Yeah. He was uh, he was a performer. He was a hoot and and after I think 40 odd years in the business, he would come into work every day. He didn't work a very long shift. He would come in at 5 or something like that. He would come skipping in and singing some show tune and and Bill was just a happy go lucky guy who was fascinating and a million stories to tell and he was real. What he did that's why it worked. He was a personality. He was a character. One day his hair was red. The next day it was brown. You know, but he, he was, was, was like a real guy. Yeah, yeah. And people loved it. And these American media consultants have tried really hard to make everyone be a green widget. They want everyone to look the same. Well, she'll be successful if she has a blonde bob and, you know, <clears throat> size B cup or whatever. You know, <laughs> they want everyone to fit some sort of specific image which I think is exactly the opposite of what people at home, the people who have been really successful and iconic in their careers have mm-hmm. been individuals and been unique and interesting and different. Because if we're not presenting anything different, we're all essentially giving you the same news. Then you have a choice of four green widgets to pick from and what? why would you want my green widget over CTV's green widget? Yeah. So yeah. we have to be offering something different. And I, Yeah, I mean... the Bill formed a relationship with his viewers in that way. Oh, but totally. Not just that. You guys are broadcast, not just in Edmonton. People in weird places get Oh, yeah. Television. We're huge in the Maritimes. Well, <laughs> people grew up watching Bill Matheson do the weather in Edmonton. They're out east. And I just find that, the you know, I, I watch CTV every now and then. And I enjoy it. They do good news. Yes, um, they do. But th- there's just some, I feel a, more of a connection to Gordon Linda and 
Bill Matheson. <clears throat> well, we appreciate past. that. But having said, you know, you can say exactly the same thing about CTV, right? I guess. So there are people who grew up watching CTV, and they're very happy and familiar and comfortable and satisfied with that product. Therein lies the problem when you're trying to move the sticks with ratings. How, how are you going to convince a CTV viewer who loves it? Hey, you know, we're doing something over here. Check us out. They're like, I don't, you know, I'm perfectly happy with this. I don't yeah. need to go there. So then you have these tiny little windows where you have an opportunity to make people, to force feed them your product. Mm -hmm. Like during the Olympics when CTV was not on in its regular slot at six. Now you were either watching the Olympics because that was interesting to you or you were looking for a news source at that time. And I'm sure there were people, and we know there were people because we got phone calls, who said, I have never watched you guys before because I was perfectly happy over there. Yeah. But I wanted to go at six and see what's going on with the news. And wow, I, you know, really, I'm quite impressed. I'm, I'm interested. I've never seen this before. You know, I mean, probably a lot of them just went back to their old habits after. But I'm sure some of them stayed because they had just never checked us out. They'd never sampled us before. Yeah. Um, you talked about American consultants coming in and, and you know, telling stations how to do this thing i know the cbc did this quite recently yeah. one of the one of the the deliverables that these consultants gave the cbc was your anchor should be standing which well, just seems yeah. so it's like completely <laughs> yeah. absurd you know how to do news this this will get you viewers stand up and I, i've ranted about this before Scott, you have I, on I've this show it. you have ranted and about them it, standing it, up you know i think that i think that where where stations are going to be successful is not because they're doing something that worked in the United States, but they're do you should be doing something that works for the community here because ultimately the people are watching you because they want the local stuff. Right. right? Oh, absolutely. Like Otherwise can, we I just get, wouldn't exist. Yeah, I can get the national stuff from the internet or yeah. you know, the journal earlier that day, whatever. So so this notion that, that anyone from California or New York has any business coming in here and, and telling us how to do it well, seems weird. you know, I think part of that is that if you're a boss and you're going to make a big decision like an anchor and you don't want to make the wrong decision, mm -hmm. so you solicit someone else's advice who does this allegedly professionally, and then if they say you should go with, you know, person number B or whatever, and then they turn out to suck, then you can say, well, it was the consultant That's true. who said we should go that way. So there's a bit of a layer, a buffer of, um, and often really we joke, honor people joke, that when the consultants come in, they really are telling you what the news director would like to tell you but doesn't want to tell you, <laughs> right? So, so you're paying someone to be a spokesperson. Exactly. You're paying someone to deliver the bad news. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty much it, yeah. So that you don't have to be the bad guy. Yeah. I mean, we don't really even do it anymore just because the times have been so tight that that was one of the things we shaved off the bottom end. Yeah. I was shocked that the CBC did it, and especially when American. I mean, hello, what's more national than the CBC? And yeah. they're going to the Americans to tell them how to tell Canadians how to do the news? It didn't make any sense. But Because Canadians, they'll get their news from the local stations, and they'll more often than not get their programming from the United States. But that's just because there aren't a lot of TV like no. sh people, sh it's super expensive. And yeah, making shows here just not yeah. feasible. I mean, cor what what do we have? We have Corner Gas and no, Dragons Den. Corner oh, yeah. Gas is over. Dragons yeah. Den. Yeah, there and there a little are little Mosque on the Prairie. But but uh, and and we're naming mostly CBC shows right now. That's because so. it's you know it's the one tax. that's doing it. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. CTV's tried. Um, they they had a show, a cop show that they shot in Toronto. I can't remember what the hell it was called. My yeah, I think watched. it was successful too. Yeah, yeah. But but I wouldn't 
as as a producer or you know someone making decisions at a station like that, that's a risk getting into the, the producing a show. Well, it is a risk, but there's also an obligation. I think there's a certain amount of money that all the Canadian networks have to set aside for local, not local programming, but you know, unique Canadian drama Some CanCon. Yeah, exactly. Can-Con. Yeah. Do you remember that show, Train something? What was it called? It was a global show. It was really bad. I don't... It I'm, was shot on an LRT train or something, and all the characters just sat around talking on the train. I remember, remember? <laughs> I remember so the terrific. ad for it. Was it... It was shot in Toronto, I yeah, think, Yeah, it was like yeah. Train 24 or That's something. That's what it was. was yes, it? it was something like, like that. that. And it was so terrible. Yeah, it was. It was like... We've alienated one of our fans right now. Yeah. He's like, no, it was awesome. I <laughs> just don't understand the, the depth of the characters. It was nuanced. Uh, some people loved it. It was like a soap opera on a train, and it must not have cost much because the characters just sat in the same seats and they talked. That was the whole show. It's like if Seinfeld was shot Brilliant. on the New York City. Mind you, I can remember it. Train, whatever it was called. So train I guess it, I suppose it worked. On that note, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll uh, talk with Linda Steelmore. It's the League of Extraordinary Media, TheEdmontonian.com, TrueBrittle.com, The Unknown Studio, User-Created Content. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a guarantee of quality Edmonton-based online content. If you're interested in joining or would like more information, visit LeagueOfExtraordinaryMedia.com. And we're back. <laughs> at, this, at this time, I'd like to thank a couple of our sponsors. One is uh, the, the Edmonton, Edmonton Journal. Journal. Um, they have uh, decided that we're we're good. We're a big deal, actually. They, they like us, and so really, they help us out with a little bit of sponsorship. That's nice. And then uh, Guru Digital Arts College, which I'm not going to say in tandem with you because it's a mouthful. It is a mouthful, but they they do really they're doing some really awesome stuff around design, yeah, website development and that kind of thing, and. Uh, and they're growing, and they're doing really interesting things. They have a program there called, I think it's like video game level design. So you can get a diploma. Wow. And I talked to their executive director, uh, and he's he'd mentioned that it was they're they're offering this course because the way video games are designed, he thinks is is the way or the way people think about designing video games should be the way that people think about designing websites because the experience in game is very nice. You've got information displays set up in a in a very user friendly way. Yeah. And that he, he thinks that he can sort of parlay that into web design. So yeah. thank you to the Edmonton Journal and Guru for uh making this show possible. Or more possible. <laughs> yeah. We'd we'd still be doing this. It would the quality would be worse. Yeah. We'd have uh far less high profile guests. Scott and I would be dressed in burlap bags. Well you should we're see still, them now. We're yeah. still no. waiting on that steak dinner. <laughs> no. Yeah Linda was horrified when she came in. <laughs> <laughs> just couldn't believe that we would dress this way, but it is the weekend. It's true. We'll leave. Uh, we'll leave the image of that to your imagination. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's gross. So, what, what should we get to next? What do you guys want to talk about? Well, you're well. In, you're involved in a lot of. Uh, I, I don't want to say charity stuff, but you do. You do some. You're you're involved in stuff. You get to speak at at all kinds of events, right? Yeah, well, and everything is different, too. Next weekend, I'm going to Jasper, and I'm uh, introducing Margaret Trudeau at a event that's being held at the JPL that is about mental 
wellness and she's got a quite well-known issue that she's struggled with bipolar disorder and she's mm -hmm. just written her third biography, autobiography, a memoir. And so she's pretty cool. I had her in the studio and interviewed her and I really, I laid in bed the night before thinking about how I was going to lead her through creatively through a four-minute interview where we're going to talk about mental health. We're going to get to some of those old stories about dating Mick Jagger and whatever, talk about the charismatic Pierre Trudeau, mm -hmm. and then sort of segue back out to this uh, event. And I really crafted this interview really well. I wanted to talk a little bit about the depression with her son dying and be you know, really cautious about it. And we sat down, I asked her one question, and she just ran away with the ball for the rest. <laughs> you just kind of sat there? I pretty much almost had no more control. She was fascinating. I mean, she talked almost solidly for four minutes, and I had trouble cutting her off. We went two minutes heavy. My producer was furious. But she was fascinating. And I thought, well, all right, then we'll just go there. So yeah. those laid plans. You know, you try to direct something. You try to not over-direct as well, because sometimes a better interview it's organic and it'll go where it mm -hmm. wants to go. That's what we're finding right now. It's true. <laughs> we're actually. just going all over the place. Now, you you released a book a little while ago. Yeah. Uh, and it was called The Laptop Diaries, right? Mm -hmm. And it was a collection of, of columns from the that you'd had From the Edmonton the Journal. Journal, yeah. Now, I so I should tell our listeners, the reason that I know Linda is because whether she remembers it or not, and I'm surprised that I do, and you'll understand why in a moment, <laughs> me and my partner from OilersNation.com went to a hockey game a couple of years ago. Uh, and we, we were in the club section. We got some great tickets. And we were consuming alcoholic beverages in a staggering quantity. <laughs> and, I, and we saw Linda hanging out down there with her. She had a stack of books with her and some Sharpies. And I had her. one last box yeah, to sell. That's right. And, and she was selling her books. So me and my partner bought, I think, seven of them. Yes. And I we was made quite you, delighted. And we made you sign them all. To the Oilers Nation, love yeah. Linda Steele or something yeah. like that. Well, we should say, first of all, the reason that we were even there was because this book was a 100% fundraiser for the women's shelters. That's right. So I had my last little grouping of books that I'm trying to get rid of, 5,000 books before Christmas. And I said to the Oilers, would you mind if I came to a game and tried to sell them there? And they were really gracious. They let me go on as a guest in the intermission, and I was interviewed in their fancy little glass studio. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then people came down like you and bought books. Uh, and I had three or four girlfriends running around. That's right. Three or four good-looking women. That was very helpful. Going up to <laughs> drunk men who were <laughs> on their fourth cup of beer. Would you please buy a book? And you did. Seven of them. Yes. Now, what what Marketing. prompted you to buy seven? I think that was all the cash that, that uh, we had. Now, really, because that's very generous. And why did you do it anyway? Well, because we... Uh, we think Linda Steele's a big deal, Aww. and uh, and we just wanted to. I mean, part of it was strategic. I'll be honest. We, we, we <laughs> Here want, we go. We wanted to, you know, we created this website and we were ignored by everyone except for a few stalwart fans. And we've since grown, but we wanted to form a relationship with media in Edmonton because we're not out to to screw anyone over. We right. we just want to be sort of part of the scene, delivering this this product that we have. And so you seem very nice, so we approached you, and I managed to, I, it must have been a year later, Linda, where I, we parlayed that into working together yeah. on raising funds with Original Joe's yeah. Varsity 
for women's shelters in Edmonton. Which I thought was really cool because, first of all, you know, domestic violence tends to be seen often as a women's issue. It's women who are affected, women and children, and men aren't often part of the discussion in regards to what should we do, this is unacceptable, and clearly men, you know, find it abhorrent. Sure. But usually the shelter workers, the people involved, and the fundraisers are women. So to have a guys group who a bunch of sports fans, Oilers fans, because I'm an Oilers fan too, so there's mm-hmm. all kinds of commonalities, and I thought it was reaching a different audience in a really cool way Yeah. that showed that guys care too. Yeah, so part of the the, the kickoff of the campaign, I, I went down to Original Joe's with, along with Trevor Belcher, who's the yeah. manager at, at the Varsity Row location, and we introduced the Beat the Heat campaign, and it was every time... Um, Oh, geez. I, Schmied, yeah, Penner, and Cogliano. and Cogliano scored a goal. $100 would be donated to women's shelters. And these were the three guys that were whose names had been kicked out there to be traded for Danny Heatley. So that's why it was called Beat the Heat. And um, and the Oilers ignored us. <laughs> Me they, too. <laughs> they, they did. Trevor approached them. The Community Foundation was like, I want to do this. Would you guys be interested? And, and I don't think that the club wanted to draw attention to the fact that this trade didn't actually happen. Right. So we went ahead anyway, and Trevor approached Oilers Nation, and he's like, you're not involved with the Oilers, and we're like, we would love to be, but no, we're not. Uh, <laughs> and he said, well, let's do this. And, and we thought, me and my partners thought, well, let's talk to Linda about where we want to donate this money. And so it was just, you know, years and years ago, getting drunk at a hockey game and buying a million bucks from you just sort of turned into this nice little relationship. That yeah, I, that which was now. really neat. Yeah. And then it just kept growing. There was a really good synergy because suddenly Avenue Magazine was going to do a feature on the Give Me Shelter campaign for the December issue, which right. Ethan Morrow happened to be on the cover. So there was all these kind of really neat tie-ins. So Adam and I went down to the Gretzky statue with a couple of hockey sticks and did a pose for the pictures so that we could include the information that you could go and donate. And the Alberta Council of Women's Shelter set up... Um, a, a nonprofit site. donation yeah. site, and it just started to flow, and people were really cool. I think it's neat that even though that's a really tricky subject, uh, and even though it's really difficult to illustrate on television because you can't show the shelters and you can't show the victims, and so it's tough to really get the emotional impact, I find Edmontonians get it anyway. They're yeah. like, yep, yeah, I'm there, I'm stepping up, I'm, I'm going to help. I think that's great. Yeah, it's it's a very giving community, mm-hmm. I find. They're very involved, very giving people, Edmontonians. Download our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we'll do more of this next year, if you're going to yeah, do Give oh, Me Shelter sure. next year. Because yeah. uh, I was talking with my partners at Oilers Nation earlier this week, and we were, we, we still want to be involved. You yeah. know, we're not just out there to talk about hockey. We want to be part of the community, and, and this was just a way to do it, so... So that was and, you know, unfortunately, the problem's not going away either. I, I know. I remember a couple of years ago, the statistic that stands out in my mind was that there were about 17,000 women and children in the Alberta shelters that were served that year. We were literally banging on the door like, oh, God, let me in kind of thing. Uh, and the so I thought, OK, well, how many people fit into Rexall Place? You know, how many times would you fill up Rexall Place and then get all those people to stand up and go out to the parking lot and wait out there? And then fill it up again. And those were the number of people who were turned away at the door of the shelters. Oh, my gosh. In that one year. And I thought, uh, from what I understand, it often takes a woman about three tries to get the guts to actually leave because she's in this horrifying situation. So when you've finally done it and grabbed the kids and you go to the door at the shelter and they say, man, I, I just we can't. I can't do anything. Yeah, that's terrible. Then what happens? You go back. The guy knows you tried to leave and you're going to get whacked out even more. It's um, it's. 
you would think in this day and age, you would really honestly think that it's not an issue anymore, but it seems to be just as much of an issue as it always was. If I can say, it's fucked up that some men do this to women. Yeah. I, it's just unbelievable to me. I would never ever think of harming another person, much less, you know, a, a woman that I'm involved with or whatever. It's and here's it, the worst part is that often kids are watching, right? Uh, and it's a little bit of that monkey see, monkey do. You become damaged. You watch your dad, who you love, even if he's a monster, because you do. Mm -hmm. You watch him be disrespectful to your mother and smack her around. And what kind of a message does that teach you? So often these kids, much like kids who are sexually abused, grow up and sort of perpetuate this cycle of abuse and violence where they think it's okay. Now I'm going to smack my wife around because mm -hmm. my dad did it and I, I love my dad, right? So you have to find a way to get in there and stop the cog, the stop the cycle from going around. So how did you become involved with the women's shelters? Oh, it's kind of a random story. We had just started the 5 o'clock news. We had a half hour to fill every day, this big template with no resources. So mm -hmm. it was, we were trying to be really creative. And I got a newsletter from Windhouse, one of the shelters in town, and it was just a Christmas newsletter, and we're doing this and that, whatever. And on the back it said, if you could donate any one of these items, the shelters, you know, Windhouse really needs it, toothpaste, Barbie dolls, Christmas presents. And it just sort of occurred to me in that moment that, you know, here we all, oh, happy, happy time, it's Christmas, we're looking forward to going skiing or buying a gift or getting a gift or all those sort of commercial things that happen with Christmas. And it occurred to me, well, I can't even imagine being stuck in this sort of rooming house situation in a woman's shelter with your children, trying to explain to them why Santa's not coming or where dad is. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, it's horrifying. I couldn't believe, it just had never thought about it before. It had never occurred to me that this was a scenario that was played out every day with thousands and thousands of women. And so I thought, I wonder if we put this out there, if the audience would respond. I wonder if we said, hey, here's the deal. Here's the facts. This is what they want. If you want to stop by the global studio and drop off a box of toothpaste or a Barbie doll or a thing of bubble bath, that would be really cool. And we will make sure it gets the shelters. And I'll tell you what, it was so cool. It was um, people started arriving by the hour ding dong, you know, at the door until we had so much stuff in the lobby that you literally couldn't maneuver in or out of the lobby anymore. That is awesome. It is so awesome that it almost made me want to cry when I went down there and would see how this thing was growing and growing. And I thought, Edmontonians are cool. That people say, hey, you know what? I don't have a lot of money, but I came and I brought this or I saved these things from hotels and here's some shampoo. Yeah. Or, you know, I have a kid coming in with, I've got a jar full of, this is my piggy bank, and I'm donating. The stories were just, I mean, it just broke your heart. It was just so cool. That is phenomenal. It's a generous time of year around Christmas, too. Yeah, of course. It is, but that's the thing, is there's so many. There's Santa's Anonymous, and yeah. there's the Christmas Bureau, and there's a million well-established charities that legitimately need help. And at some point, you think there'd be a topping out point where it's just too thin and people can't donate anymore. Mm -hmm. But my husband and I were just honorary chairs for the Lorena Shelters Avenue of Hope annual gala, which was two weekends ago. And my boss just emailed me and said, oh, my God, they raised $70,000. That's the most they ever raised at their gala. He said three times as much as what they normally raise. Wow. And I thought, geez, here we are in a situation where a lot of us feel a little strapped. And yet people are still pulling out the checkbook. So well, I think that's unique in some ways to Edmonton. Yeah. And I always think about it in the sense that, like, this this could happen to me one day. I could be just yeah, down in the Yeah, but the grace of God, for sure. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay it forward. Yep. Just make sure that if 
I ever require those resources that they're available to me. And let me just say this one little story. When you talk about the book, that laptop diaries kind of came out of a, gee, I wonder how much it would cost. I wonder how many sponsors I would need to get to actually print a book that I could then turn into a fundraiser. And I'm at the gym talking to my trainer guy, and he says, I, I know a publisher or a printer guy. If you want, I can put you together and you can go for coffee with him, and he'll tell you how it works because, I don't know, I've never done a book. So I meet this total stranger at the second cup on 112th and Jasper. I'm not even really sure what he looks like, but I can see by his reaction that he knows it's me. So hi, and we sit down. And I tell him my little story. You know, I've been writing this column for the journal for three years, and I'm done with it, you know. But I'd like to put it together in something that might turn into a fundraiser. So how many people would I need to just get the basics to print a book? And he said to me, um, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pay for it. <laughs> so I what? said, what? I've, I've literally never met this person in my life. I said, what do you mean? And I'm embarrassed because I'm not sure if, if he means what I think he just said. Yeah. He said, I, um, I'm going to pay for it. He said, I've had a really good year. I don't need the money. Uh, we often do some sort of a philanthropic thing where they pick a cause each year. He said, I just think this is a really cool idea. I've never heard of anyone donating 100% of the profits. So if that's really what you're doing, I'll pay for it. So he put down 40 grand. What? And he paid for that book. That's phenomenal. And that his amazing. name is Richard McCallum from McCallum Printing. Okay. By the way, in case anybody should ever want to go to someone who really walks the walk in this city. That's phenomenal. Yeah. A little name dropping never hurt. Hey. He deserves it. He does. That's 40 grand. Mm -hmm. That's wow. incredible. I've never been able to earn that much money just by asking a book publisher for it. I don't think I've ever earned that much money. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it had the kiss of the angels on it, too, because then the photographer agreed to do the picture, the artwork for free. Mm -hmm. And then I got Audrey's and Greenwood's agreed to waive their 50% normal take on each book sold so it could go to the charity. And then the guy, this guy was working at McCallum, said, you should call Chapters. I said, I can't call Chapters. They're going to tell me to get lost. <laughs> you should try. You should walk in there with confidence and say, hey, you know. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to put in this sheepish call to Chapters. They went on board. We sold. I sold almost all the books at Chapters. I was there every weekend for five weeks. Signing books. Signing books. And it was just hilarious. And I don't mean this in any way to sound like an egotistical thing, but I'm still thinking, is anybody really even going to buy one of these books? And at one point, I was going to the Chapters for a book signing right after work on the south side, and I walked in the door, and I looked up, and the big round of applause and I thought what's going on <laughs> and there was my little table with my little sign and everything and there was a lineup of people from the front of the store that snaked around to the back of the store waiting to buy a copy of the book and they burst into applause when I walked in it was the most embarrassing thing <laughs> it was so heartwarming I thought really like really are you, you kidding me are you serious deal. no I mean that was very cool that people wanted to do that what is it like to be recognized on the street I operate in this ridiculous cone of silence bubble where I'm quite sure that nobody actually knows who I am. So I'm not, you know, I mean, and what I mean is that I'm not walking around like looking over my shoulder, oh, did anyone notice that I've arrived? You know, <laughs> I'm just shopping. And so it often surprises me when someone's staring at me because your first reaction is, is my fly undone? Yeah. Is there something just hanging out of my nose? <laughs> you know, what is it? And then you realize, ah, well, that's right, it's the TV thing. So. Are people, do people come up to you and say hello? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, the people who are your viewers do. There's yeah. the odd person who comes up and they just want to have an interaction and they'll say, I watch you every morning. And I'll think, well, that's funny because I've never done the morning news. But <laughs> <laughs> thanks anyway, you know? Yeah. So they just want to say they met you kind of thing. Oh, but the totally. weirdest thing and the coolest thing is that 
over years, like you said, you've been watching for years. So you have this sense of familiarity where people feel like they know you, even though you don't know them, I've never met them before. So you dispense with all the small talk because they're quite certain they've known you for like 20 years, yeah. right? And so in the lineup between the top of the lineup and the checkout at Safeway, they are telling you about a loved one who's dying of AIDS. And you're having these super, super intense and intimate conversations with people in micro fast order mm -hmm. because they don't think they get, think, you know, them as well as they know you. Well, you're in their living rooms every night. Exactly. Right? Which is a privilege. Yeah. So it is a bit of a mind thing. But I think it's also a privilege that someone trusts you enough that they're going to go somewhere that deep with you that fast. And when they're going away and you're hugging someone that you just met, good luck, you know, as they walk off to yeah. their car. That's amazing. You have these really intense relationships with people that you wouldn't normally. So it, it is a privilege. Is it is it hard to deal with that kind of those kinds of interactions sometimes? Only well, you mean the really intense ones? Yeah. No, 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 no. I don't think so. The only time it's hard is that occasionally we're all human beings. Sometimes you just you're tired and you think, oh, I just don't even feel like going to Safeway. You know? Yeah, I don't. And deal you with that. can't. You don't have the luxury of having a bad day. Mm -hmm. You can't be snippy. You can't be nasty. You can't be anything less than incredibly cheerful and happy. And, and I mean, you normally are anyway, but there are days where you just really don't feel like talking to anybody. You don't feel good. You just feel like rushing in and out. Mm -hmm. And you can't do it. I mean, you have to say to everyone who wants to take the time and stop and chat with you, you have an interaction with them, whether you feel like it or not, because... They're taking the time to talk to you, and they're supporting your station, and we, yep. we appreciate that. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have jobs. And secondly, if you have a bad interaction, they will go tell 100 people that you're a bag. Yeah. You know, They will say, oh, yeah, she thinks she's so full of herself. Oh, blah, I blah, blah. oh my God, she's just, you know. Um, the funniest <laughs> thing, though, is that people don't realize that they're being, I don't know, it's not rude, but the one thing that Gord and I and all honor people get all the time is someone is just, unfiltered they can't stop themselves from saying oh my god you look so much better in person <laughs> and so <laughs> you think to yourself okay and so basically i look like a bag up on the air but in person and then they'll say and really you're not as heavy as i thought you were well, because they think tv adds 20 pounds right true. right so they think you're fatter older and a little bit more hideous on television <laughs> and so the only good thing is that as you walk around in person suddenly you I said, the day I quit TV, I'm going to be younger, better looking, and thinner. <laughs> Interesting point of fact. Uh, when Linda showed up to do the interview today, uh, the first thing she said to me was, you look different in person. Yeah. Here's the worst part, though. I work on radio. Yeah. Yes, but I've seen your little icony thing, and That's you were true. blonde, and you had sideburns and all the rest of it. So I wasn't sure if you were the technician <laughs> or if you were the main man. He is the main man. Yeah. And I'm the technician. <laughs> That's right. right. Jack of all trades. Um, you mentioned little icony things, and I do want to ask the question because okay. I know that people are going to uh, give me shit if I don't. All right. You left Twitter a little while ago. Yeah. And uh, and I, maybe you can share with our viewers what, what what brought you to that decision. Well, it was actually fairly simple in a way. I saw this amazing ability to reach people and disseminate information. Mm-hmm and try to engage people who may not have been our viewers and may never watch us at six to come to our website and sample us in some way or another. And it was an instant forum to get information from people, to get story ideas. I mean, it was like incredible. But 
because it's new technology and our management had not come up with a social media policy yet, and they were somewhat uncomfortable with the idea of giving out our quote-unquote agenda or letting the competition know what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And in the absence of any sort of formal policy, either locally or in a network basis, they decided that it would make them much more comfortable if all news, breaking or otherwise, was funneled through the Global Edmonton account so that they could control it. Yeah. Um, and so that left me with nothing to do but, hey, I'm having a coffee now, you know. And, <laughs> having a coffee uh, exactly. and we're not supposed to use the computer or the Internet or social media for those purposes while you're at work. So it kind of left me with nothing else to do. So uh, I directed my followers. I didn't want to just toss them to the competition. So I tried to get them to go to Global Edmonton. And that's the end of the story. It's not very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Although the Twitter community speculated on all kinds of Oh, I of felt like Britney Spears for yeah. a moment. I should have shaved my head or something. Everyone was looking for a smoking <laughs> gun or a grassy knoll somewhere, but it really wasn't very interesting. There you go. You heard it here first, people. We know what happened to Linda Steele on Twitter, and now you do too. It's true. It is true. Is there still a fake service. Linda Steele on Twitter? I haven't seen her tweet. Oh, good. I Keep the, an eye out for, for I that. I will. I will. It's the only thing I worry about. The, uh, the peahen tweets every oh. now and then. Which I, th I find very still, funny. yeah. I think that it's. I <laughs> have a feeling. I have a feeling that it was. Does the Banff squirrel still tweet? No, nope, I no, haven't okay, seen anything from Banff. Was anybody else following Ferris Bueller yesterday? Yesterday, what? Ferris Bueller uh, tweeted his entire day yesterday with uh, several side accounts of other major characters from the movie. Over the course of the entire day, he had his day out. They were sending twit pics no of him at certain events. Uh, they were checking in at Foursquare at all the places yeah. that they went to. Like it was a day-long campaign. It was fantastic. Really? Yes. I will say this one last comment. I was really surprised because I was new to the whole social media scene. I think Twitter in particular, because I know it better than Facebook, has a remarkably intelligent, funny uh, interested, committed, curious group of people on there in a small little microcosm. Yeah, I was shocked at the level of engagement and intelligence in that little community that was at your fingertips. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And it is, uh, it is a thing that is unique to Edmonton because there was a, a Brittany LeBlanc at uh, iNews eight eighty did an interview or, or story with a guy. Or had a conversation with a fellow from San Francisco who wanted to talk to her about why. Uh, Edmontonians are so in, engaged. Mm -hmm. like, Whereas other communities in other cities, you'll have like three people. Yeah. Whereas Edmonton has this huge uh, social media community, especially on Twitter. There are over 8,000 Edmontonians on Twitter, actively on Twitter, yeah. th that, that identify their location as Edmonton. I suspect the number is quite high, quite a bit more high than 8,000. There's probably more 10 or 12. You know what my theory is? What's I'm that? probably wrong, but this is my theory about Edmonton, is that I think we're the last major market city that still has the small town mentality, and I mean that in a positive way, mm -hmm. where we still feel connected as a community and we still care about people. We're still going to stop if someone's passed out on the sidewalk or has a car <laughs> accident. We'll give directions because we still feel like we're in part of a community. Yeah. And I think some of these other cities get so big that people start operating in isolation with each other. Yeah, I agree. With I mean, that. that's my theory. Edmonton is the biggest small town exactly. in Canada. It is. Exactly. It really is. Possibly in North America. Possibly. Yeah. There's and probably one in cool. Missouri. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we, won't, we won't speak about Missouri.
I think it's time. What? I think it's time. Um, now I'm fearful for the okay. Fast Fifteen. So, oh my goodness! Is this this is like a this, this is, is going to be fun? Okay. This is a random segment that we created uh, during this during the, the second, second show episode, yeah. that we did. I, we had uh, Edmonton City Councilor Don Iveson on the show, and I thought, well, at the end of the, it'd be it'd be funny to just ask him fifteen random questions. Okay, is this like the actor's studio? You're not going to ask me my favorite swear word or anything, are you? No, I'm not going to bait you <laughs> to say anything you. terrible. Okay. But All right. uh, but it's fifteen questions. The first thirteen are questions we ask all of our guests is this top of mind i just give you a word just or? boom okay and uh, and then we'll ask you two wild card questions that we've tailored to you oh if you get stumble if you stumble on a question you can't you don't want to answer it you can pass twice those are the rules okay oh, you get okay. two passes I'm not a passer no well let's see <laughs> here we go the fast 15 with linda Steele. number one your favorite food chips number two your favorite color green uh do you use a mac pc or linux pc Dogs or cats? Cats. What was your first vehicle? A Dodge Coronet. <laughs> what's your What's your favorite holiday? Oh, uh, somewhere exotic. Canmore. That's which isn't exotic. Very... <laughs> Sorry. It's <laughs> okay. Your fa- exotic Canmore. <laughs> exactly. Ah, yes. uh, your favorite sport? Hockey. Favorite pastime? Uh, shopping. Is that a pastime? I think it is. Yeah. Favorite music at this moment? Oh, everything's honestly country. I guess I'm a country girl, but I also like hard rock. Awesome. Your favorite movie? Don't have one. Pass. The, the, <laughs> the next two questions are about movies. Oh, geez. Okay. So, well, see, I work until seven. I don't see the movies. I still haven't seen Avatar. How sad is that? Really? Oh. Yeah. And I didn't know what Iron Man was either. Todd James thought I was a moron. <laughs> okay, go. Uh, so uh, is, is there a movie that you hate but everyone else loves? Hate? Yeah. No. Uh, no. No, there isn't? No. Is there a movie that you get made fun of for liking? No, so now suddenly I've just become a hugely boring human being. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Linda doesn't see movies. She I makes don't. them. You t- switch those questions to books or something. Next time. All right. What was your proudest moment? Or one of your proudest moments? The book. Uh, raising almost $100,000 for the women's shelter. That's pretty phenomenal. That was cool. We're now on to our wild card questions. The first one, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? To fly. Awesome. That's mine too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and the last question, who has been one of your most interesting interview subjects? Okay, well, I have to say that I have had the privilege of interviewing so many interesting people that I now have to have a category. Are we going to do sports, entertainment, politics, medicine? Let's do... Scott, you pick. Pick a category. Uh, entertainment. Entertainment. Let me think here. I'll tell you. Seem like they're going to be weirder. Yeah. Entertainment. Well, okay. My head is spinning with um, people. Uh, Martin Short. I had Martin Short. I was desperately trying to get an interview with him at River Cree, and they kept dangling me on the line. Maybe, 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 maybe not. Maybe not. Oh, hey, Martin Short needs someone to interview on stage in his character as Jiminy Glick. Would you do it? I thought, well, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And maybe I'll get an interview. And so they made me go early so they could wire me up with a wireless microphone. And I was in the bowels of River Cree behind the stage in the darkness with some guy with his hand up my dress. And I looked back, and there was this tiny little man standing in the shadows with a big smile. And it was Martin Short. And it was, oh, it's Martin Short. And his big fat suit was laid out for the Jiminy Glick character. Was he just just standing there? He was standing there. He knew that he was going to want to be polite, wanted to meet me because he was going to interview me in character. He had done his research. I said, do I need to know anything? He said, no, just 
play along with it. I thought, okay. I'd watched some of his Jiminy Glick interviews, and they were frightening. <laughs> <laughs> so I sat in the audience and waited for my cue, and then he called me up, and it was, uh, it was fascinating to yeah. stare at the great Martin Short in character and have no idea where he was going. <laughs> And did he ask you any really, really tough questions? Well, one of them that made me cringe as my husband was sitting three feet away was, is it true that you and Gord Stanky have been having an affair? <laughs> and I was like, no, no, of course not. Oh, my God. And my husband graciously laughed. Ha, ha, ha. Hmm. You know. Then but, next uh, time you saw Gordy, throttled him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Decked him. Uh, yeah. I, I do want to ask you one more sort of follow-up question. What Name one person that you want to interview but haven't yet, that you would like to Daryl Cates. Okay. Greta Garbo himself. <laughs> no, I just, I don't, I want to know, I get it. I get the fact that he's introverted and not wanting to be in the limelight, but you can't buy the Oilers and want to build a $1.5 billion development downtown without at some point coming out and explaining why it makes sense for everyone. And it just, it has I to be would, downtown. Uh, I think he should have a fireside chat with me because I do my homework and I'm fair and I'm not going to rip his eyes out. I just want to meet him. I want to see what he's all about and I want to, from my own interest, I want to know more about the project. So Daryl Cates, as we know, you listen to our podcast. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. I'm pretty sure he's listening right now. Yeah, Daryl, you need to call in a buddy. Like, seriously. That's right. Also, uh, maybe field a decent team of hockey players. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, I know. That was me saying that, Daryl, not Linda. Please. See, I'm not allowed her. to interview anyone who wears the number 44 anymore. That's right, because uh, Sheldon Suray. And Pronger. And then oh, up on my bulletin board is a picture of me happily interviewing Jesse Lumsden, who is now gone. <laughs> and then there's a picture of Harper. They said Harper will be out. He'll be out next year. Carol Burnett, she'll be dead. And so and so, you know, it's like everybody. Ravine, he's lost his powers. All the people I have on my wall, they're All joking because, because they claim that every time I interview someone, suddenly something horrible happens and they leave. I've had Linda Steele is the kiss of death. <laughs> yes, I interviewed one of the Rush players. Oh my God! I said he's number forty-four. I said I'm afraid to interview because he'll ask for a trade, and his partner said, "Oh, he asked for a trade last year. They can't. They're not going <laughs> to let him out." Well, at least you dodged that. Bullet. Yes. So we're screwed now. Basically, that's what we've just learned. Actually, if I think it works the other way, if we interview Linda Steele, I think that that we'll somehow we'll become celebrities. That's the hope at the very I least. think you guys are celebrities. Oh, you're so sweet. And you were both amazing interview. Ease, well, Urs. Adam was. I just sat here nodding my head. No, but you, the, every person needs that sort of sidekick, <laughs> and this was your role today. You were offering quiet confidence. And you were. You yeah. actually have your hand on his knee underneath the table. It's I true, think. I do. I'm giving him uh, <laughs> physical support. Uh, physical support. So to speak, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Scott, what's going on for our next show? <laughs> we don't know. Actually, we do. We're going to have uh, a couple of people, well, probably one person, actually, from the local startup community telling us about some of the exciting stuff that's taking place in Edmonton. Um, so stay tuned for that in this subsequent episode. Linda? Cool. i just like to say uh, if anybody found anything offensive, how long have we been talking? An hour. It's Adam's fault. Yeah. I swore twice. I... <laughs> yes, you did. And one of them was absolutely deliberate. And <laughs> still <laughs> will cost you a dollar. Yeah. yeah. So uh, every time I swear. Oh, do you have a swear jar? Yeah, I have a swear jar. Oh, so we're going to donate that money to charity at the end of the year. Women's shelters. There you go. All right. We'll give it to Edmonton win Women's Shelters. That's yeah. what we're going to do. There you go. All right. All right. Linda, thank you so much thank for Thank you for today. having me in. Awesome. We're done. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 24. Our guest, Linda Steele, our topic, working in news in Edmonton. 
pre-production by Adam Rosenhart, post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening.